There is a fifth dimension, beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition. It lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Dimensions, a Twilight Zone podcast. In this episode, we will be discussing Season 1, Episode 8, titled Time Enough at Last. This episode was written by Rod Serling, based upon a short story by Lynn Venable, directed by John Brom, who directed 12 episodes of The Twilight Zone in total, produced by Buck Houghton, and in the cast were Burgess Meredith, Vaughn Taylor, and Jacqueline DeWitt. Music was composed by Bernard Herman. Where to watch, this can be seen on Hulu, Amazon, Netflix, or the DVDs if you happen to own them. If not, I recommend purchasing them for they are a good investment, at least if you really enjoy this show. The original air date of this episode was November 20th, 1959. Be aware that this episode does contain spoilers and... If you so feel, I take any and all feedback, questions, anger, resentment, hatred, vitriol, and good tidings at my email address at dimensionstzpodcast at gmail.com. And now, here's Will Lastly with this week's opening narration. Witness Mr. Henry Bemis, a charter member of the Fraternity of Dreamers a bookish little man whose passion is the printed page, but who was conspired against by a bank president and a wife and a world full of tongue cluckers and the unrelenting hands of a clock. But in just a moment, Mr. Bemis will enter a world without bank presidents or wives or clocks or anything else. He'll have a world all to himself, without anyone. As always, the wonderful Will Lastly with the opening and closing narrations of the episodes of this podcast... Without him, wouldn't be quite as good. So the episode deals with a man named Henry Bemis, who is played by Burgess Meredith, who is a diminutive little man in Coke bottle glasses, who is a bank teller with a passion for reading. Now, one thing I always enjoy while watching The Twilight Zone is the fact that back then you could have a man who was a bank teller loan officer at a bank, some mid-level nobody in a typing pool in an office, and they somehow made enough money to support a family. Maybe no children, but at least, you know, support a household with a wife. And I always enjoy that little bit of slice of Americana in all the episodes of this show and other shows like it at the time that, you know, somewhat mirrored what actual life was was in a parody of sorts like at that time in this country. So we've got Henry Bemis, who likes to read, but has, you know, bottles so thick he could see the future on his his noggin there, over his eyes. And and we see him talking to a woman at a bank, and he's he's giving her change, 
or cashing a check of some sort, but he's he's counting out money. And one of the things I always enjoy watching episodes like this uh, from old TV shows, Twilight Zone, Andy Griffith, you know, the older TV shows, whenever they show money, you've got to remember that people watched this back then on anywhere from a 13 to a 15-inch TV screen, and that was that was big time back then. That wasn't like, you know, the 50-inch TVs of today that they have. We're talking about something the size of your computer screen or smaller. And the money they use is, is so blatantly not real money that it's, it's, it's quite laughable. It looks like Confederate money. I don't know how else to describe it. It just looks as fake as humanly possible. But once again, on a 13-inch, 15-inch screen, you're not going to notice, oh, the money doesn't look like real money. It looks like, you know... Monopoly money, but, uh, you know, I digress. Shout out to Monopoly, one of the best board games for disrupting a happy home that was ever created by the Parker Brothers, so good job on that. All I'm saying is if you're not getting angry while playing Monopoly with your family and the people you love, you're not doing it right. That's all I'm saying. So Bemis is counting money to a bank patron. And he miscounts and shorts her by a dollar because he's too busy trying to read David Copperfield while sitting in his cage. And I don't know, I was I always kind of had issue with that part of the show because I'm thinking, you know, he, he's hiding it on his lap trying to read while he's counting money. Like, like the reading is so important to him that he literally couldn't wait 15, 30 seconds to count out the rest of this money for this woman. Because it's not like the bank was full. It was literally just her and like one other customer. You know, and it's not like he had to give a book report by five about the book. He didn't. He was just doing it for fun. But in a half hour time slot, they have to kind of drive home the narrative that this guy loved reading among uh, above everything else. You know, that was that's his passion. That's his his life. So, of course, he gets noticed by his boss and has to have a meeting with his boss where his boss played by Vaughn Taylor, who we will see in other episodes of The Twilight Zone on down the line. Um, he gets yelled at by him for, you know, being a not-great employee, which, I mean, if he's sitting there reading David Copperfield or trying to count out 15 $1 bills to a woman and can't do it correctly, yeah, then I would assume he shouldn't be in that position. And the one thing I always kind of like about the scene where the bank president yells that at Bemis is that it the way Burgess Meredith plays it is it's almost played for laughs and his his nervous anxious demeanor really plays well to kind of bring a little bit of levity to a bad situation I mean I guess you could see you know that uh, Henry Bemis is one of those people that tries to find humor in things that that terrify him and you know everybody knows someone like that today I'm one of those people you know that you know that's his way of coping with something that he doesn't like is to laugh at it or try to find something funny that he can you know kind of get himself out of that mindset so in the next scene we see him at home with his wife uh, played by Jacqueline DeWitt who is only in one episode, this episode, of The Twilight Zone, but she seems like a capable enough actress, especially playing the overbearing wife sort that she does in this episode. 
but you can tell that Bemis is totally henpecked, which, you know, they have other terms for it that they use these days, but we won't go into that here. Um, but she informs him that they will be playing cards with the neighbors, to the, you know, this evening, and that he should change his clothes. And she said that she didn't like him reading because she says, I don't want any husband of mine sacrificing the art of conversation for want of the printed page. To which Bemis, Burgess Meredith's character, replies that, you know, what do you mean, any husband of mine, you've only got one? So once again, it's him trying to cope with an overbearing wife by trying to bring some form of levity to the situation. So she leaves, and we find that not only does Henry love to read while he's working, he also hides books under cushions of seats in the house so that he can read while his wife is not looking. But as we see in this scene, she marks through all the words on every page, so the book is unreadable. And this is one of those things where I almost wish this was an hour-long episode because they could have, I think, delved a little deeper into how he would come to be married to this woman and why she was the way she was toward him and how their whole marital dynamic worked to create the situation that we find ourselves in in this episode. But in only a 30-minute time slot, once again, you kind of have to uh, you kind of have to figure out ways, you know, to kind of ham-fistedly put it in there. And it's not a fault of the director. It's not a fault of the writer. It's just the fault of the 30-minute time slot. Watching this episode and seeing John Brahms' work, along with Rod Serling's writing, you can tell that there is a lot of potential that could be done with this episode, but is is not as good due to the 30-minute time slot. So we see him at work the next day. We don't get to watch him play cards, sadly. And we see him at work the next day where it's noon, and he decides to take his lunch break, like he does apparently most days, by going down to the vault and closing the door so that he could have a little peace and quiet while he eats and reads. Now, one thing I always loved about this episode, and there's many things I love about this episode, this is one of the quintessential, if you're going to show someone an episode of The Twilight Zone that's never seen an episode of The Twilight Zone, this is one of the ones that you would start with because it's it's one of the most celebrated pieces of TV history since TV was created. But the scene where the bomb hits and it destroys everything around Bemis except the vault that he's currently sitting in, to me is one of the coolest things, especially the first time I saw it as a child. To me, it was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. You know, he's sitting there and the pages of the book fly open his watch shatters, and then the whole room starts to shake and tremble and quake, and it, it tosses Bemis around a little. So when it's all said and done, and he's, he's able to open the door of the vault, we find that everything around him has been turned basically into rubble, which, again, as a child or even a person in the 1960s, when you saw this, 1959, 1960, when you saw this, it had to be something. I mean, you just see utter desolation, utter, utter destruction. And it's it's really quite a powerful scene. Especially when you start hearing 
his boss's voice, like on a tape recording. And Bemis finds it and comes to see his boss's dead hand still clutching part of the tape recording device that he was recording a speech into. I imagine that was quite something to have seen back in 1959. Because remember, this was a time when on TV, you know, the good guys shot the bad guys, but the bad guys never bled or never died. Now, one of the interesting things about this episode was it was one of four episodes where Rod Serling has mid-show narration, where he breaks into the middle of the show while watching a scene and he narrates part of it. Now, some of it is done to enhance the dialogue, enhance the story, you know, add richness to it. And sometimes it's done, I think, and you'll see in some of the other episodes that it happens in, uh, it's done basically just to kill a little time, I think. So now Bemis realizes that he's all alone and that's the part that bothers him. Now he faces the loneliness. He finds a couch out in the middle of the rubble and he basically passes out from sheer exhaustion, which I think most anyone would do after being in that traumatic of an experience. And when he he wakes up, he wanders around and starts to crack up a little bit, as anyone would do faced, I think, in that situation. He starts to crack up, starts to talk to himself, starts to cry for help because he is lonely and he actually stumbles upon a sporting goods store where he also stumbles upon a loaded 357 revolver now uh trigger warning to the young people if there's anyone under the age of 75 that is listening to my voice um he puts the gun to his head and basically says you know I'll be forgiven for this, I'm sure, because his next option was basically to end his life. But he is saved at the last minute by noticing that where he is sitting is about 20 yards from the public library. So right before he took a nap, he found food, plenty of food. And after the nap, he found a gun where he almost ended his life. But then he discovered the library. Still somewhat intact, but still containing plenty of volumes of printed works of different authors, poets, etc. To where he could have all of the reading he could ever want and all the time in the world to do it. To which, of course, as he says, you know, that there's time now. There's all the time he needs. And it's at this point that he notices a book about two steps below him. He bends down to pick it up, and his huge see into the future Coke bottle glasses fall off of his head, hit the concrete, and shatter. And he closes out the scene saying, you know, that it's not fair that there was time now, and it's not fair at all. And now, here's Will Lastly with the closing narration. The best laid plans of mice and men, and Henry Bemis, the small man in the glasses who wanted nothing but time. Henry Bemis, now just a part of a smashed landscape, just a piece of the rubble, just a fragment of what man has deeded to himself.
Mr. Henry Bemis in The Twilight Zone. Thank you, Will Lastly, for the closing narration. Now, John Brom directed this episode. He also directed 11 other episodes. Five in season one, two in season two, two in season three, one in season four, and two in season five. This episode, though, of the 12 being the most celebrated. He also directed episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Outer Limits, and Gunsmoke. He also acted, his only acting career, or only acting credit, I should say, was in an episode of The Twilight Zone titled Person or Persons Unknown, which we will talk about later when it comes up. Now, Burgess Meredith was born in 1907, died in 1997. He was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and he has 181 credits to his IMDb. He's a venerable actor of stage and screen, and his first role on film was an uncredited role in 1935's The Scoundrel. He acted in films and TV ever since, most known for his roles as Mickey, Rocky's manager in the Rocky movies, Jack Lemmon's dad in the Grumpy Old Men films, as well as his role of the Penguin in the 1960s Adam West version of Batman. He was blacklisted for a time by the House Un-American Committee um, during the Red Scare in Hollywood, but that couldn't keep him down, and he came back even better, bigger, faster, stronger, and longer than ever, and he was also in four episodes of The Twilight Zone. His wife was played by Jacqueline DeWitt, who was born in 1912 and died in 1998. She was mostly just a character actress from the 40s. She was on stage in the 30s and then started in TV and film in the 40s with a total of 71 credits to her IMDb, which includes episodes of Suspense, The Danny Thomas Show, Wagon Train, One Step Beyond, as well as several movies. She did uh, get distinction by being the only woman to ever play a wife to Bud Abbott in 1946's Little Giant. Mr. Carsville was played by Vaughn Taylor, who was born in 1911 and died in 1983, so he was give or take 82 years old, but he was a very well-known character actor with 194 credits to his IMDb page. He was in five episodes of The Twilight Zone, including this one, of course, uh, Still Valley, I Sing the Body Electric, The Incredible World of Horace Ford, and The Self-Improvement of Salvador Ross. He was also in episodes of Perry Mason, My Three Sons, Rawhide, The Andy Griffith Show, and as well as uh, a bit part in the movie Psycho. Now, let's move on to the trivia section of the podcast. Uh, some bit, good bit of trivia on this episode. Um, of the episodes that Rod Serling had written, the uh, at least written the screenplay for, if not the entire episode, this was said to be his favorite one that he ever wrote. It is also one of four episodes using the mid-show narration. And we'll talk more about those when they come up. For the character of Mr. Bemis, two pairs of glasses were actually used for the filming. One for close-ups 
which Burgess Meredith couldn't see in front of his face out of, and one for longer shots that Burgess could actually see out of well enough to do stuff, you know, and, and not just fall all over the place. The exterior of the library used in the episode was also used in the movie The Time Machine, as well as in another Twilight Zone episode titled A Nice Place to Visit, which we will get to before long. And this episode was rated 25th out of 100 Most Memorable Moments in TV History by TV Guide. So, it's in good company. Now, let's move on to the goofs in the episode. And there were a few. Um, no, no great work of art or anything is without its flaws. Some of the flaws are only visible by the artist and some are visible by nearly everyone. And unfortunately, in the medium of television and movies, the mistakes are usually seen by a lot more people than just the artist creating them. So, to uh, rain on everyone's parade, the nuclear fallout from the H-bomb, uh, since Bemis basically walked right out of the vault after the bomb had disintegrated everything, um, he wouldn't live long due to the nuclear fallout. And let's say he even did wait the requisite two weeks or a month if he was able to survive in the vault that long. Any food that was still out there would probably be tainted or nuclear in nature at that point. So that, of course, is, is stretching the realm of reality. Um, to go along with the food aspect, if all of the people were you know, incinerated by the blast. Obviously not the hand of his boss, who was still holding on to the tape recorder, but, you know. Um, but if all the bodies were blown to smithereens, uh, most of the food, even the canned stuff, would have went with it. So he still wouldn't have had really anything to eat. And the books would have gone as well. So, so there's that. Um, the newspaper he is reading in the vault on his lunch break says it's published daily, but it contains no date on the byline. So, you know, obviously it's a movie prop, which of course it is, because it's a television show. And lastly, but not leastly, um, during the nuclear explosion, while Burgess Meredith was being thrown around the vault and the watch face was cracking and the book was turning pages, the light in the vault would have went out instead of stayed lit like it did. So, there's that. Now, let's move on to the likes and dislikes. The likes of this episode. I liked the uh, really strong performance by Burgess Meredith. I think um, in the realm of Twilight Zone, you can't help but, but realize that this man is a fantastic actor. And, you know, love him or hate him for any work he ever did. You know, a lot of people don't like the Rocky movies or what have you. I know that's, you know, he's most famous for that. Or the Penguin from, you know, the 60s Batman television show with Adam West. Uh, love him or hate him, the man was talented as could be. And that's really seen in this episode and I believe in the other episodes of The Twilight Zone that he appears in. Um, and Obsolete Man being, to me, one of the strongest performances of anyone on an episode of The Twilight Zone in in the entire run of the series. The direction by John Brom was, was really, really well done. Um, obviously, a few mistakes here or there, what have you. You know, that's not all his fault. So, um, 
I would not lay the blame at his feet, but the direction, the way it, it all went, I think he did a phenomenal job, and he did it well enough to do 11 more episodes. Um, so I think that's that's pretty good. And apparently I'm not the only one, because he won a Director's Guild Award for this episode. So, you know, that, that speaks volumes right there. Another thing well done to me was uh, the supporting cast, most notably Vaughn Taylor, who, like I said, we'll see again in future episodes. Um, but they all played their part well, uh, even though there was only a few. They played their part well. They did their job quite, quite capably. And it shows. And the last thing I'm going to talk about that I like in this episode was the theme, which reoccurs throughout the seasons of the Twilight Zone and the whole end of the world, what do you do in that situation sort of thing. And I enjoy seeing those episodes due to the nature of seeing how different people react in different situations. And it's always fascinated me, the human nature part of these episodes that Rod Serling, to me, and through Burgess Meredith, captures so well on film the nuances and the the behavioral patterns of people in these situations. And to me, they're some of the best episodes. You know, two more that, that come to my mind that kind of deal with this the same uh, theme would be One More Paul Bear or The Shelter. Both very good episodes. Both we will talk about when their time comes. Now, on to the morale uh, philosophy of the episode. I think maybe Serling was trying to teach us that paying attention or loving or being obsessed with one thing is is always going to be a downfall of man. Because people become focused on you know one thing and it, it rules their life be it a job, be it a relationship, be it uh, drugs, alcohol, porn, what have you. Uh, everyone takes something in their life way more seriously than they ever should. And I think Serling is, in a way, through the backdrop of nuclear war, uh, showing us that this is to be obsessed with something, to be you know, enamored to the point of shunning most other things, in life, to be that caught up with something is never a good idea. Now, I I don't think Serling is telling us never have passion about something, never be involved in something, or never, you know, enjoy an activity or anything. But much like much like in this episode, all Burgess Meredith wanted, all his character wanted, was to be alone so he could read. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it didn't happen in the right way. And I think maybe that's what Serling is trying to tell us, that there's nothing wrong with having passion, nothing wrong with having an obsession to a point, but go about it the right way, I think, is what he's trying to say. Now, if Hollywood called me, because Hollywood is a person, apparently, in my mind, but if Hollywood called me and said, Hey, Bill, we're going to remake this episode. Who would you cast in the, in the lead roles? And I would say, okay, Hollywood, who would I cast in the lead role? Well, for Henry Bemis, I would go a little outside the box, and I would cast Steve Buscemi in the role 
of Henry Bemis. Mainly because I think it would be a perfect fit. The man can act. Granted, he's done a lot of silly Adam Sandler, uh, Adam Sandler stuff, which is not bad. But, you know, he, we know he's funny, but a lot of people don't realize he actually can act other than just playing a goofball. And I think given this opportunity, you would see what I mean. Now, for his wife, I would choose either Frances McDormand or Tony Collette. Both are extremely talented actresses, um, and, and both would, would fit the bill to a T, I think. And I would like to see the episode a little longer, just to flesh out their part a little more. Now, for the bank manager, I would say, let's go a little outside the box with this too. And we'll throw in Adam, Adam Sandler in there as the bank manager. Why not? We know he can act some. Granted, he still acts like a goofball. But he can actually act some, and we've seen that. Okay? Well, you know, if you've paid attention to movies in the last few years, you know, you've seen that Adam Sandler can actually act if given the opportunity. And I think this would be good, because it's just a lot of yelling, mostly. And for the woman customer that Mr. Bemis shortchanges in the beginning of the episode, why not throw someone else in there? Just a little cameo, maybe Jennifer Aniston or somebody like that. Just to have a little something, you know, nothing big, small, small part, big actor. Why not? So that about does it for this episode. Um, next week or next episode, I should say, we uh, have the show Perchance to Dream, which is about a guy who has a nightmare and sees a psychiatrist. I won't give the spoilers away, of course, on this one. But give it a look and, you know, let me know what you think. And with that, uh, if you have any feedback, hatred, you know, anything you want to send me, anything you want to ask, anything you want to say about previous episodes or future episodes to come, email me at dimensionstzpodcast at gmail.com and I will be sure to read them. And we will discuss them, and I look forward to hearing your viewpoints. So, thanks for listening. The clock on the wall tells me it's time to go, and I will see you next time.